Joseph Arangio from Tactical Workouts, and today I'm with a very special guest. Mike Pannone is a former operational member of Marine Reconnaissance and Army Special Forces and 1st SFOD D. He's lived a lifestyle that has been arduous and has required a high level of tactical strength and conditioning. He's owner of CTT Solutions, providing high level custom programs of instructions in tactics and marksmanship. Mike, thanks for being on the call today. Thanks, Joe. Can you give us a little background as to how you got into this tactical world? We started out in, uh, in Marine Reconnaissance and then moved over from uh, the Marine Corps to the Army, the Army Special Forces. From there, I went on to uh, first SFOD, Delta, and then uh, retired after a breaching injury. And when the war kicked off, off in 2001, I, I got a phone call to come work on the Air Marshal Program as an instructor. And that was my re-entry, really, into that, into that, uh, into the tactical world after a, a medical retirement. And from there, I did uh, <clears throat> was an instructor there in Seattle. Went over to Iraq in 0304 and 05, doing different stuff. Uh, the final tour being a ground combat advisor uh, to the Marines in Anbar Province. And then I took that experience, full spectrum, from the military to the federal law enforcement world to uh, contract work in, in Iraq as the basis for becoming an instructor on the on the uh, private side. Can you share with the readers why elite physical fitness is so important for tactical operators and how this tactical strength and conditioning has been so critical in your career? Well, it's, it's the foundation for, for everything you do. The base that that you work upon is your fitness base, your, your physical base, your ability to function under stress, um, your ability to make good decisions under stress are all based on... on physiological factors, your ability to control fatigue or to function at levels and for durations that are above normal. So it's really, it's, it's, it's truly the, 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 the foundation of any, any operational person's success, for lack of better terms. And so with that, without them, you can't, you can't truly be fully functional because that connotates that even at, in, in levels of, uh, fatigue that you're still capable of doing the job and without that without that level of fitness you've only got a certain shelf life so to speak and that's that that has to do with your heart rate and fatigue level after that you can't you can't function at the level that I call as advertised what people expect you to be able to do as a fully trained operator in whatever it is that you do can you provide a few real world examples of body weight only workouts that tactical operators are doing in the field maybe from your first hand experience there's an infinite number. Everybody comes up with kind of their own. Uh, I came up with one I called one, two, three workout or a hangar workout, like aircraft hangar, because we would stage in hangars at places. And I would do 100 uh, pull-ups, 200 sit-ups, <clears throat> and 300 push-ups. <clears throat> Initially, I did them all as blocks. Like I do my 100 pull-ups, and then I would do 200 straight sit-ups, and then I would do 300 push-ups and sets of whatever I could do to effectively to muscle failure. I found that making it into a circuit was far more efficient. I got more benefit out of it. So I do a set of push-ups, a set of abs, a set of pull-ups and go around. Then I added in uh, doing lunges. I would lunge in between each set, do 30 steps, 15 with each leg. So I was adding in another component to the circuit. It took nothing. Now, when you're in, even if you're in a hangar, there's water cans or there's things around to carry. What I would do is grab a water can in each hand. So now I've got a 45-pound water can in each hand when I do my lunges and then do my push-ups. Uh, at that point, I have two water cans. I put my feet up on them, stack them up, and do incline push-ups. So I just started adding in 
making it making the circuit bigger and bigger. But guys have a have a, an unbelievable imagination. They'll find ways to work out anywhere they are, and so it's just a matter of your, your imagination. That's what I did. I did what called the one two three workout, and uh, the goal being finalize the schedule on the workout and then just see how fast you can do it almost like a crossfit type of type of scenario where you say okay i can do i can do this block this you know for crossfit people fran in x amount of time well i would do my one two three workout and i would keep track of my times so in a sense you were progressing your training program by doing a certain amount of volume in less and less time interval exactly just measuring my efficiency let's shift gears and talk about your kit training in kit how important is training in kit to prepare for the demands of wearing that actual gear it's it's important but it's it's overstressed by a lot of people you need to build a resistance you need to build a an endurance for carrying carrying loads and about 15 to 20 percent of of military training involved load bearing to get mostly to get your feet hardened to it because strangely enough the the first thing that goes are your feet. <clears throat> you start to get blisters and, and you get sore feet and all the rest. You have to harden that that portion of your body up um, along with your shoulders where <clears throat> different equipment hangs. But load-bearing exercise uh, outside of the, the outside of probably 15 to 20% does a lot of damage to your body, actually. Um, soft tissue gets compressed. You're not, you're not really designed to carry the kind of loads that we carry nowadays. And uh, it's a different, it's a different military. I mean, they're they're changing with lighter weight plates for you know armor plates and all the rest. But back in World War II, you carried a rifle and a uh, basically a set of suspenders with some ammunition on it, and that was about it. Now the average guy's carrying far in excess of forty pounds on his body with weapons and radios and armor and all the rest. So conditioning is important to get the tendons and the and the joints accustomed to it. And to get you accustomed to different wear points, because they're going to rub, it's going to rub on you and give sores on your back or your feet. Once you've done that, you're starting to do damage. And I, I did far, far more load bearing training than I should have, and I regret it now because I, I I've done damage to my back. It's not it's not something that I'm not hunched over, but I notice it in the mornings when I wake up after a hard workout that that I I did excessive load bearing. So it's got to be done in moderation, but it's important to to get your body accustomed to bearing that weight over periods of, of, of arduous activity. You bring up a really, really important point, and you're bringing this up based on real-world experience. You're saying to the listeners that you did far too much load-bearing. You're saying carrying a full kit and training mm -hmm. in full kit. Can you can you elaborate on that a little bit more so maybe some folks listening can avoid um, what you've done? Yeah, I used to... Uh, I used to run with at the end of of uh, road marches. I would put on a rucksack with fifty or sixty pounds, and I would walk for I don't know twelve, fifteen miles as a training march. And then at the end, I would I would always run like the last half mile with that weight on my back. Hmm. I felt that I was getting benefit being able to sprint at the end and all the rest, which it has a certain level of psychological benefit. But the problem is, at that level of fatigue, I'm reaching the point where I'm starting to support my, my body weight skeletally instead of muscularly because the muscles are so fatigued. And so as that, that weight is bouncing, I'm doing damage to soft tissue in my body that I, I wouldn't have done if I had run right at the beginning, run a, a quarter mile right at the beginning. So it, it, at the time, it seemed like a good idea. I mean, I was, I was, quote, getting harder. But 
in the end, I was I was really getting no benefit from it, and I was doing damage to to my lower back. So it's 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 easy to be hard. It's hard to be smart. You got to know know what you're doing and why you're doing it. What the genuine benefits are. If you don't know, go to someone who's a you know a, a sports fitness therapist or a doctor and say, listen, this is what I'm doing in my program. Is it? Am I going to do damage to myself? You go to someone that's actually formally trained in it because you won't realize the things that you're doing. Just side note, real quick. I see people do it a lot of do it in the gym a lot of times. They'll put weights around their waist and they'll be doing pull-ups. They'll have 45 pound plate around their waist, and that same person can't do 20 dead hang pull-ups. So now you're bearing load on joints that weren't designed to bear load in that range of motion, excessive loads, and you're doing pull-ups when when you're not really in pull-up shape yet. So it's you got to be smart about the workouts that you do, or else you wind up doing damage. And I did that with weight bearing. I did too much of it. Yeah, Mike, you bring up a really good point. Uh, we see, as a as a tactical strength and conditioning coach, we see similar situations where folks are teaching coaches are teaching like pistol squats and single leg yep. squat variations mm-hmm. way way before it's appropriate for the the tactical operator, the tactical athlete to for for their their soft tissue to handle that yet so they end up kind of you know they they do the they get by doing some ugly version of a pistol squat and um they 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 tend to have a a higher incidence of strains and sprains believe it or not doing that movement before they're actually hardened to do the movement so even though you got a guy who can maybe put a barbell on his back and and you know back squat 315 pounds you know touching his butt to the floor when you just give him his own body weight, if he's not physically, uh, he hasn't progressed up to a pistol squat or a single leg squat, he could actually do more damage doing a single leg pistol squat than squatting with a bar on his back. So it's um, d- definitely your your what you're saying is 100% 100% true. The I think folks listening, the take home message is you have to progress your training mm-hmm. in a very uh, smart fashion. Every training program needs progression and overload. And if you're unsure of what you're doing, if you're just kind of making it up, you definitely need to consult a, a strength coach or your doctor or your physical therapist. Um, so thank you for that. Mike, can you share your opinion on some of the more common injuries that uh, military operators uh, in particular are experiencing? So, for example, you're loaded up, you got your full ruck, and maybe you have to jump off something a couple feet off the ground. And then you're getting these landing injuries, which... Uh, as a side note, a lot of guys aren't training to, to land with load and you might twist an ankle or you might hurt your knee. Uh, it's an expense. This is an expensive situation. It's costing the military a lot of money and disability. Do you have any thoughts on how to decrease this, this style of injury, the landing type injury? Yeah. The, the, in special operations particularly because they're, uh, every one of them is an airborne unit. You have people jumping out of planes, uh, landings are, are known for causing injuries and they're, uh, invariably, ankle, knee, and back injuries with some sh- some shoulder injuries if people land inappropriately. Theoretically, everybody knows how to land, but it's it's really situation specific because when you're under when you're under canopy, people recognize that and they associate that with the appropriate way to land. Sometimes that doesn't happen, but the the biggest load bearing stuff that I see are ankles and knees because they're the most fragile. They're they're the easiest to injure, relatively speaking. I I uh, was climbing up a guy's back during a, a training assault and he lost his balance a little bit and I slipped off of him and fell only the height of, of uh, Bryce, which is probably six foot. Landed on the balls of my feet, uh, feet and knees together just like a parachute landing fall 
and I sustained a Lis Frank sprain, which basically had detached all the ligaments in my in my right foot. That, uh, aside from being tremendously painful, was caused by the amount of weight that I carried and my actual physical size. I was a lot. I'm about 175 now. I was 200 pounds at the time at 5'8", so I was pretty pretty stout. That, with all the equipment on top of it, my body was not designed to to bear that load, and so my my physical conditioning actually lent itself one for me being too thick and then the the amount of weight that i carried um, it, it lent itself to injuries that said flexibility and uh, i would say proprioception training um stabilization muscle training things that keep you that allow your body instead of using just huge muscle groups to manipulate your weight using those smaller stabilization muscle groups a lot of times they're neglected a lot of uh, um, ball work um, is important to keep your get your balance good balance is a huge part of it because those large muscle groups will fire when they need to but there's nothing the, the supporting muscles the stabilization muscles are not are not comparatively strong and so now when that big muscle group fires it will drive you right out of your range of motion and cause an injury so we didn't do enough I don't think back you know when I was still in didn't do enough um, balance type training stability balls and stuff like that um, and we didn't do nearly enough flexibility training those two I think would have a huge huge effect if you look at Olympic athletes flexibility and balance are, are everything I mean, and that, that's, that should be the model that we go to is the most successful athletes in the world. What do you do to be successful? How does it apply to me and how can I use it? That's a great point. Uh, folks listening, Mike is saying that he was really <clears throat> built almost like a, you know, a, middle, a middle linebacker, an outside linebacker, 5'8", 200, and, uh, 200 pounds. That's very muscular. Uh, I think it's a big misconception that a lot of the elite uh, operators are these big bodybuilder types. They're really not, right? No, not at all. I actually, um, I was that heavy because when I came off that that injury, that Liz Frank sprain, um, one of the one of the uh, therapists that I ha- had said, "Listen, lift heavy because you're you're stimulating growth hormone and it goes through your whole body. It it washes through your whole body. It'll help you heal faster." And I started lifting heavy and I put a put a, a lot of weight on when I was over uh, doing some stuff in uh, overseas, and it just kind of I, I just kind of stayed with it. it. It became enjoyable because I was doing well at it. Um, prior to that. I'd done a competition in Russia, a Spetsnaz competition, which is a, a long-range race that we do with with teams. We were one of the one of the first teams invited there, and I was, uh, for reference, I was 167 pounds. Hmm. So I was, I was lean, I was strong. My muscle-to-weight ratio was really high, so I I carry too much weight. Now, overall, you'll see in special operations, people are built more like triathletes or like CrossFit type of people than they are weightlifters because you you're carrying that weight and it's giving you no benefit. You're, you're not getting anything for it. So you can lift giant, you know, you, you, you can lift, lift atlas stones. Great. But you can't use that functionally in your job. And so it becomes inefficient. It's a level of efficiency. They're not looking for brute strength. They're looking for efficiency in the ranges of motion that you're go- going to function in. And so that anything in excess of that is, is it's like carrying extra weight. It's like putting extra weights in your, in your rucksack. It, it gives you no benefit whatsoever, and it is actually detrimental to you longevity-wise. Good point. It's a, it goes along the same lines as having excess body fat. Mm-hmm. And obviously at the, the elite levels, it's not as much of 
of a of a situation as it is maybe in law enforcement um, with a, a patrol officer or someone who's very very sedentary or even um, you know just just some individual who's very sedentary in the military having extra body fat is no different than having extra you know a, a backpack full of bricks it's going to make your heart work harder it's going to make everything more challenging and the easiest thing someone can do to improve your level of conditioning is just simply get rid of the excess junk, get rid of the body fat. That's the first thing you can do. But as Mike is saying, having too much muscle tissue is also inefficient. So um, very, very good point. If we shift gears, Mike, talk about this concept of training in an adrenalized state. And I I say that quote unquote adrenalized because some folks don't even believe that's a real a real term. I mean, they don't think that you can kind of replicate it. Uh, that's what I mean uh, when I say that. So in other words, getting your heart rate elevated in order to prepare for a real hormone dump that happens when you're stressed. It, well, there's a couple different things that are integrated. People call it stress inoculation. I call it physiological inoculation. It's where you're, you're pushing yourself. If you can't do it emotionally through a traumatic event, which obviously you can't unless you're, with, you're, you're participating in one, Physically, you push a person so far that they are they they begin to radically degrade their performance. I want to push if I'm training you or someone else. I want to I want to push you if I'm training myself. I want to push so hard that I'm I'm reaching the point where I am dramatically degrading my efficiency and see how much it degrades and what it feels like and what the problems are. Where does where does my performance degrade specifically and what crucial factors do? I want to push myself to the edge of that. As, as, as frequently as is necessary for me to become accustomed to it so that when I am pushed there by circumstance that I don't come apart, I don't come unglued and, and fail to function. So the, 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 uh, there's always talk about fine motor functions and, and ability to do certain things and I, that's a whole side note because a lot of people don't even know the difference between a fine motor skill and a gross motor skill but certain, certain things that, that degrade dramatically are those genuine fine motor skills and you have to see which ones within your profile meaning your mission profile, what you do, which ones begin to, begin to degrade and how rapidly you can get that back. Can I take two deep breaths and and get back in it? That that's, that's always been my goal, take two deep breaths and be able to, regardless of fatigue level, function at least at 70% of what I need. So I, I in my own training and in the training that I've received at, at the highest levels of special operations, we were always pushing to the fringe to see where that degradation is and then identify it, isolate it and go, okay, we need to work on this under pressure. The only way that you're going to do that is to push yourself to the edge. And it's not, it's not pleasurable, but you'll learn to like it because of the benefits it gives you back. You got to learn to, you got to learn to love to do the things you hate to do. I mean, it's, it's part of, it's part of getting great at anything. And so that's the, that physiological portion of it, that stress inoculation push you to the brink and then see where it degrades and then you can isolate each component that begins to degrade and go I need to work on this under pressure I need to work on that under pressure these three things I'm good to go so do you think it's possible to replicate this adrenaline dump in training I know that levels of fatigue are levels of fatigue and I know from things that I've done overseas that at a certain point it's just fatigue Fatigue takes the dominance. When you're that fatigued, when you're running in a ton of kit and it's 108 degrees at 10 o'clock at night and you're jumping over walls, it, it, it's at a certain point, it's just fatigue. It, it, yeah, the adrenaline, there's a lot going, going through, 
your your system and you get bursts of it, but at a certain point, you're just fatigued. You are just extremely fatigued and you can replicate that easily. So at a minimum, a large component of what you're trying to prepare for, you can prepare for without people trying to do ill towards you. What future trends do you see regarding tactical strength and conditioning? And, and by the way, this doesn't just have to be at the elite levels. Um, the, the things that I see, interval training and flexibility training. They, they have, they've become very, very well known where they didn't before. It used to be, well, just run or run longer or just do more push-ups or just do more pull-ups. The concept of interval training and high-intensity training, uh, I, I got that uh, guy named Mike Gittleson, who is the uh, University of Michigan strength coordinator, famous guy, brilliant guy. He started working with my old organization about strength and conditioning because we have a limited time. There's so many things that we are responsible for being capable at. I mean, it's it's there's there's the, the number of tasks is is unbelievable in a at a at a tier one special operations level that you have to be able to do and be on demand. And have someone from the highest levels of the government call you and say, "Hey, you need to you need to execute this now. You don't have train up time. You have to be as advertised." And so we have limited time for fitness. Not no time, but you don't have hours to dedicate to it. And so they brought him in, and it was about strength conditioning that's effective. It's functional fitness, is what we called it years ago. And he did interval training to muscle failure with with assisted reps after muscle failure. And it was unbelievable. It, it's, it stimulates certain molecules in your system that that help your body to grow and, and respond to the to the uh, excessive loads that you're taking on. But the interval training is the most I, I believe is singularly the most efficient workout regimen that you can do. And it's 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 time sensitive. You can you can get it done uh, in a short period of time and be effective. The only drawback to it is that you have to push yourself. You have you 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 don't have the luxury of taking big breaks in between sets and all the rest. You have to push exercise to exercise to exercise. Otherwise, it's not effective. But I think interval training is, is I think it's going to be the, the wave of the future if it's not already that because of it, the level of time efficiency you have and the, and the return on investment, so to speak, is phenomenal. Uh, the second part is flexibility because that's injury prevention, 100%. If you are not flexible, and that's coming from a guy that's not nearly as flexible as I should be, uh, you are... You are, you are putting money in the bank when you're doing flexibility training flexibility and stability they kind of go together when you're when you're working on it but those things are hugely important for injury prevention and it, it's I, I in my in my fitness career flexibility was singularly the most neglected portion of it and i i wish i hadn't because there are there are a lot of things that that would have been a lot easier with more flexibility and the longevity of of joints and tendons and all the rest would have been uh would, would have been enhanced. So I think interval training and flexibility training are going to be in, in programmed fitness environments where you've got, like military special operations, it's already integrated into that. Um, it, if it's not already there, it should be because it's very efficient and it's very effective and proven so. Thank you very much for that. For the, the folks listening, the prepared citizens that are listening, uh, I'm sure they would be excited to hear your thoughts on um, preparedness and what you really need to be prepared. Absolutely. First, the first thing obviously is is mindset. You have to psychologically be be prepared for um, a, a shutdown of services in one capacity or another. Uh, some of the most important ones: are water and electricity. 
Okay, we, we take them for granted. We turn on the switch, the light comes on. When there's a power outage, people are like, what the heck, the power's off. Okay, assume that, that there's a good chance that you will have no power and no water coming out of your outlets or your faucet. So be prepared for that. Okay, have have some water storage on hand that you can utilize. If you have they they uh, sell it at stores in big five gallon jugs, and I'll have enough water for several days at a minimum. Have a battery powered radio so you can actually hear what's going on. They'll they'll still be broadcast as to what what is happening. But if you don't have electricity to turn on a a radio, you need a battery powered or I, I uh, prefer a solar and battery powered radio. Have some foods just stashed away so that if you can't get to stores, you see it with big storms. People go to stores and they just they, they rape the shelves. There's nothing there. Have some food saved up so that you can you have food, you have water, and you have a way to hear what's going on on the outside. Um, I would look at uh, having um, a, a way to put things on your back and go if you need to vacate the area. If there's a storm or there's a fire or something where you have to leave, a way to carry the things that you you want to take with you that are crucial and have, have a, a list of those. Have things that if we have to leave because of, if you live in a, a forest fire area, if we have to leave because of a forest fire, this is what we're taking. So at the moment of consequence, you're not trying to figure out what you're going to do. The key to all of it, and it comes from a, a military background, have a plan. Have a plan if we have to leave or if something goes bad. What are we going to do? How are we going to persevere as as uninjured as possible through this? So the, the key to that is going to be you looking at your circumstance and your location. Where do I live? What do I need? I live in the desert. I'm going to need to have water on hand. If you live by a giant lake in Idaho, chances are that's not a problem. So it's going to be a pro, it's going to be based on your locale and what is around you. But you've got to think about it in advance. And sometimes people don't want to go to those kind of scary places in their mind and go, what happens if the power shuts off and if the water shuts off and if there's a giant fire? And it, it's not something fun, but you have to have a plan in place. Otherwise, at the moment of consequence, you will make a bad plan, not make a plan, which is even worse, or you will miss things that you didn't want to miss. You'll make mistakes that you didn't have to make because you did not plan in advance. The the single thing that I, I think is is uh, is most crucial is taking in is objectivity, taking in the circumstance for what it actually is. I mean, it's people don't want to believe it. You hear it in in all in all sorts of traumatic incidents. I couldn't believe it was happening. Well, if you can see it, then you can believe it's happening. If you can imagine it, then you can prepare for it. And so that the idea that I don't want to imagine bad things. And so I don't imagine them. And so without imagining them, without going through them in my mind, I don't formulate a response. And so when they happen, one, I'm stunned by them, and two, I have no, I have no plan in place. And so it's, it's, a, it's, I mean, life is about contingency plans. Nothing goes the way we expect it to go. And so we have to be, we have to be prepared. And so the things that, the things that come about, even though they may be a surprise to us, shouldn't be a shock. We should have some at least cursory plan in place. This is what I'll do. This is where we'll go, etc. And a lot of people, they just don't want to think about it. They don't want to think about bad things, and I understand that. But, you know, catastrophe and calamity and, and misfortune swirl around everybody every day, and they land on somebody, and nobody gets left out. So you got to have a plan. You, you can't just sit around and, and hope things work out. Hope's not a plan. 
Thank you so Thanks. much, Mike. Folks, we've been speaking with Mike Pannon. Mike, if people want to get in touch with you or they want to learn more about CTT Solutions, where would they go? Uh, just go to the website, www.ctt-solutions.com, and uh, shoot me an email. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mike. Folks listening, this is Joseph Arangio from Tactical Workouts. Thanks for being on the call.